certainly uh, a privilege and a pleasure to introduce Chris Pinney here today. Uh, many of you will, of course, be familiar with his work uh, through the numerous articles that he's published uh, through his books, uh, Camera Indica and Photos of the Gods. Um, and I would just say that uh, for me personally, Chris's work has been uh, extraordinarily inspiring and helpful, um, particularly in, in the way that Chris has sought to find a way to navigate in between, on the one hand, some, some notion of a universalizing aesthetics, and on the other hand, uh, the avoidance of um, a reified discourse of Indian cultural particularity in thinking about images. Um, above all, I think what, what Chris does so well and, and what remains profoundly important about his work uh, is that, that at all times he wants to give images their due, uh, to give images what is due to them, to allow us to be surprised by images, and to not tell stories about images that are already stories being told in other media, uh, to not reduce images to illustrations of histories or stories that we already know. Um, so on that note, um, I would uh, just say that uh, Chris's talk here today, as you can see on the screen, is called Photography as Prophecy, India, 1839 to 1900. Um, and hand over the floor to Christine. Uh, well, thank you, William. Thanks for that very generous um, introduction. It's um, a great pleasure to be um, back here. Um, I should explain that uh, I have an allergy at the moment, which is causing slight um, modulation in my voice. So I hope it's going to um, last out. Uh, we shall see. OK, the trick was to fold it carefully in the right places. Of course, a ruler helped. First, all the way along the top, about a third of the way down, then the same all the way along the bottom, so that when folded into itself, the photograph couldn't be seen. Some of the albumum on the surface of the print cracked and fell off, but that couldn't be helped. One end was folded over to make an envelope shape. Then the photograph taken in Lahore in March 1858 of Sir Robert Montgomery, Lieutenant Governor of the Punjab with his staff and their wives, survivors of the recent insurrection and shown here was addressed to Major Henry Yule in the Public Works Department, stamped, of course, to the amount of four annas and posted. <coughs> this travelling image draws our attention to the manner in which some photographs existed in network networked spaces, informational flows, data streams. Here we can detect a trajectory of connectivity, photography mediating collectivities in extended networks. But we can also trace a converse trajectory of privatization and individuation. In this idiom, photography constitutes an increasingly confined space in which its technology seems best suited to the capturing of individuals rather than collectivities. The uh, next section is called Photography and Telegraphy. Uh, let us start by considering photography as network. A Kittlerite analysis, that is one inspired in part by Friedrich Kittler's techno-materialism, would be deeply struck by the coincidence of photography and telegraphy. In India, this relationship was peculiarly intimate, as it was also in the US, in large part because of the role played in both domains by assistant surgeon William Brooke O'Shaughnessy, one of the earliest enthusiasts for photography in India and subsequently Director General of Indian Telegraphs from 1852 onwards. It was O'Shaughnessy who reported in October 1839 to a meeting of the Asiatic Society on his experiments with the new photogenic drawing, which, quote, was exciting so much attention in Europe. 
It was O'Shaughnessy who can claim to have introduced photography into India. Six months earlier, in April and May 1839, O'Shaughnessy had erected the first long line of telegraph ever constructed in any country. Starting in the house of Dr. Nathaniel Wallach, the superintendent of the Botanic Gardens of Kolkata, the line was 21 miles in length with 7,000 feet of river circuit. Unaware of Morse's development of a different system two years previously, O'Shaughnessy's telegraph registered its effects on humans by electrical pulses delivered to the fingertip. O'Shaughnessy's experiments performed on this line removed, as he subsequently wrote, quote, all reasonable doubts regarding the practicality of working electric telegraphs through enormous distances, a possibility, he tells us, which was initially generally guarded, regarded with contemptuous scepticism. Um, this is a photograph by um, Amid Ali Khan from the mid-1850s of an employee in the um, telegraph office in Lucknow. The telegraph was essential to the British response to the insurrection of 1857. The poet Khalib wrote that, quote, with their magic, words fly through the air like birds. The role of the telegraph in precipitating the revolt also quickly became a key element of imperial historiography. Edwin Arnold, in his account of Dalhousie's administration, reports a mutineer on his way to his execution, pointing to a telegraph line and shouting, the accursed string that strangles us. The Illustrated London News reported in November 1857 that in Murat, the cast iron sockets of telegraph posts strengthened with elect electric telegraph wire formed the basis of hastily constructed cannons, which were loaded with small pieces of telegraph wire as shot. That advocate of Comptean positivism, Harriet Martineau, in her 1857 suggestions towards the future government of India, presented an Indian fear of telegraphy as xenotechny as symptomatic of a pre-scientific theological mentality, a trope which would be endlessly repeated by other writers. The European railway, telegraph, and other magical arts, uh, I quote, introduce into India much more than themselves, she wrote. Quote, they introduce an experience subversive of ideas and practices, which would in natural course have taken centuries to dissolve and abolish. End of quote. Even the liberal historian Edward Thompson would write in 1935, quote, inventions such as the railway and the telegraph suggested to the lower castes that the foreigners possessed occult knowledge hidden from the Brahmin. Photography, when allied to these network spaces, was also a cause of anxiety. One way of understanding Said Ahmed Khan's um, celebrated 1869 anxiety about the people of India uh, the multi-volume photographically illustrated compendium of which 100 copies were reserved for official use was in terms of photography's aesthetics of the same. This um, uh, will doubtless be familiar to many of you, but writing in 1869 <coughs> from London to the Aligarh Scientific Society, he noted, in the India offices a book in which all the races of India are depicted, both in picture and letterpress, giving the manners and customs of each race. So. We have Said Amid on the left. Um, one of the illustrations um, of the um, royal family from um, uh, people of India on the right. The young Englishmen, desirous of knowing something of the land to which they are going, look over this work. <clears throat> what can they think after perusing this book and looking at its pictures of the power or honor of the natives of India? One day, Hamid, Mahmud, Said's two sons, and I went to the India office, and Mahmud commenced looking at the work. The young Englishman came up and, after a short time, asked Mahmud if he was a Hindustani. 
Muhammad replied in the affirmative but blushed as he did so and hastened to explain that he was not one of the Aborigines but that his ancestors were formerly of another country. Said Ahmed had placed great emphasis in his account of the origins of the 1857 uprising on the fear that Edmund's missionary circular had caused. This had argued, to quote Said Ahmed's paraphrase, that since, quote, all Hindustan was now under one rule, that the telegraph had so connected all parts of the country that they were as one. The time had clearly come when there should be but one faith. Okay, what I haven't fully explained here is that um, what I'm trying to suggest is that Said Ahmed's anxiety about the um, networking um, dimension of photography is really a fear of the um, aesthetics of the same. And um, so what troubles him specifically in relation to people of India um, is that there are lots of photographs, some for instance Aligarh landowners that were known to his father, juxtaposed with photographs of uh, Malwa Beals by um, James Waterhouse and others. And so it's precisely the new space that photography creates that um, like um, the space um, uh, created by uh, telegraphy and the railways and this um, uh, threatening um, unifying Christianity that um, drives this, these parallel anxieties. I'll come back to that later on. Photography as a network was also clearly linked to attempts to discipline and control Indians as colonial subjects. Although the transmission of photographs by telegraph was not possible until 1925, telegraphy was used to make photographs highly mobile as early as 1874 in India. Prisoners transported to the Andaman Islands were photographed before their departure from the mainland. Six copies were made and distributed to the police in Calcutta, Madras, Bombay, uh, the Inspector General of Prisons, the Superintendent at Tana Jail, and one kept in Port Blair. In the case of an escape, one prison official noted, quote, it would be sufficient to telegraph the photograph number and name to ensure the three presidency police commissioners being enabled at once to take steps for the recapture of a convict. The next section is called Photography as Individuation. Photography's historical entanglement with telegraphy alerts us to photography's mobility, its ability, as Norman Cheever had recognized in 1856, to transport data spatially, um, and its capacity through the multiple reproduction of the image to dissolve the specificity or aura of the original. In a directly opposed yet complementary fashion, early photography found a special affinity with the individual as an object of portraiture. These opposed idioms, the network and individuation, were aspects of a complex photographic revolution in late colonial India, a revolution whose complexity and contradictions have served to mask the force of its disturbance to those seeking one-dimensional signs of transformation. In the broader project, of which this is a fragment, um, I've traced how photography as cure and photography as poison reflected identical qualities transected by a changing material apparatus. And here I want to persuade you that these two dimensions, to describe which we could co-opt Alan Sekula's terms, instrumental realism and sentimental realism, can in a similar way be reconciled to a common pattern. Difference in practice may make manifest a deeper similitude. Superficial variations in social practice may conceal the complexity of a practice which makes possible and perhaps demands a variety of outcomes. 
This is not determination of any simplistic kind, but a complex pattern of transformations. My broader project invokes Kittler's theorization of the parallels between the gramophone camera and typewriter, and especially the similarity in the random data gathered in the photograph and gramophone record. A comparison of those two early technologies may help clarify the point that I'm seeking to make about photography's individuating propensity. Anyone comparing the content of any major retailer of classical compact discs with the 1905 catalogue of the HMV 78 RPM recordings will be struck by one obvious fact. We have a little detour away from South Asia here, and uh, we'll be returning very shortly. Um, the Recording Angel in 1905, in the heyday of pressings made from recordings on wax cylinders, transposed through the Berliner process to metal, then rubber, and finally shellac, was predisposed to the human voice rather than the sound of an orchestra. And with its limited ability to record harmonics, it seemed to have a special liking for particular types of voice, Caruso and Adelina Patti, for instance. By contrast, current CD production reveals a heavy preponderance of orchestral music and collective vocal singing. This was a reflection of a techno-material constraint. Until 1925, acoustic recording apparatus involved the buffeting of sound waves on a sapphire cutter which incised grooves in wax discs. And as the historian of sound, Timothy Day, notes, this, quote, the sound waves, the acoustical energy from a solo singing voice could be concentrated crudely by means of a horn that the sound from the resonating strings of a grand piano, still less the spread out sound sources of a body of orchestral players, could be caught much less successfully. Singers recorded best. Orchestral sound was especially difficult to capture as a totality, and the relatively few orchestras advertised on early 78 record labels were always reduced ensembles chosen for their recordability. I would suggest that early photography was subject to its own Caruso effect. Photography produced better results when photographing individuals or at a pinch couples than when confronted with large collectivities of the sort by which so one kind of historiography would claim India in the 19th century was still largely constituted. One does not have to agree with the extremity of uh, Louis Dumont's claim that the individual as such did not exist in India to recognize that the obvious subject for the photographer in India might have been jatis, biradris, work groups, or other collective expressions of social solidarities in which individuals were caught in complex flows, although these were, of, of course, the object of some photographic endeavors. Individuation, the differentiation of the person from wider social solidarities, was a result of two related dimensions of early photographic practice. One reflected the aesthetic force that single bodies as opposed to multiple bodies were able to deposit in the image. The other reflected slow exposure times and the difficulty in marshalling collective bodies in front of the camera. This second dimension is explicitly commented on by John Bleese in his photography in Hindustan or Reminiscences of a Travelling Photographer from 1877. I mean, he's an uh, interesting figure who starts as a railway guide, as a railway guard, amateur photographer, and then he makes the lowest bid to um, uh, facilitate the um, expansion of the carceral network and then ends up being the um, photographer that um, takes many of these images prior to transportation to the Andamans. So Bleese stressed the complex preparation that must be made to photograph groups successfully. Quote, make it a rule to inquire in your mind and try to realize your plan 
the next, sorry, um, make it a rule to inquire the day before of how many the group will be composed. Trace an outline in your mind and try to realize your plan the next day on the negative. Very large groups pose further problems. Quote, when there are as many as 30 or 40 to be portrayed on a 10 by 8 or 12 by 10 plate, a fancy design must be abandoned. Here the difficulty encounters you of getting the lens to see them all at the same time. And then, of course, there is the problem of movement in large groups. Quote, some people will move notwithstanding their best endeavor to the contrary. Always seat as many as you conveniently can. Taking groups of people is more difficult, Blees implies, than photographing horses. At least with horses, as with those belonging to Major Bloomfield of Nagpur, which he reproduces in his account, one could keep, quote, a crust of bread close to the horse's mouth just before exposure. Blees then demonstrates that what he terms the picture of a gentleman is what we might term the default setting of 19th century photographic apparatus. Suppose that, quote, the bust of a gentleman is to be taken, he suggests, suggests. For this, all that is needed is a posing chair and a headrest in which the sitter is positioned. The headrest and chair will already occupy their proper places. The sitter is rightly focused on the ground glass. And all you have to do when you return from the dark room is have a general look to see whether everything is right. Here is the photographic apparatus in what we might think of as its pure and normative form. All that is needed is the presence of a sitter, who sh whom we should assume is solitary and male. In Dr. John Nicholas Treseder's remarkable 1857-63 album of Agra and Kumpur, a document in the Alkazi collection of photography in Delhi of the utmost historical importance, we see how individuation frequently worked through the aesthetics of the same, which had so upset Said Ahmed Khan. After nine years' service with the Bengal medical establishment, Tresser had been appointed civil surgeon at Kumpur in 1854. And the momentous historical events with whose preamble and conclusion Tresider was intimately familiar are com complexly articulated in his album. The album provides ample evidence for the effects of the insurrection on Tresider, but also of a detailed and often empathetic engagement with Indian and especially Hindu architecture and culture. His photographs of temples and topography in Mathura and Brindavan betray the deep care with which they had been made and in the extensive series of portraits Indians and European, of Indians and Europeans, there is little sense of a society hierarchized through race. Tresida photographed many different Europeans and Indians from all strata of society with great care. On a one page, you can see it on the right here, he presents a mixture of individuals and couples and one group, some Indians, some English. At the top, level of, top left of this page, side by side, are two images captioned on the left, um, Lower uh, Jyoti Pasad, the richest man in northwest India, and to the right of this, a smaller blurred shot of a figure shot against the same background captioned, the poorest man in northwest India, an insane fakir or religious mendicant. Here, photography makes possible a new kind of fundamental juxtaposition. Individuals who outside the studio might not inhabit the same terrain are here brought within a common epistemological space. Recall Walter Benjamin's observation concerning, quote, the peeling away of the object shell, the destruction of the aura, which is the signature of a perception whose sense for the sameness of things has grown to the point where even the singular, the unique, is divested of its uniqueness by means of its reproduction.
The next section is called Photographic Civil Society. I've suggested that early photography's techno-material regime, like that of early recorded sound, provoked an individuation, a disaggregation of the individual from wider collectivities. The question now is what the consequences of that process were and the extent to which we can see them as contributing to what we might think of as a photographic revolution. Might it be too fanciful to hypothesize that the small confined space of photography helped create new forms of identification, one of whose legacies is India's contestatory democratic culture? Put starkly in this fashion, this seems absurd. But what kind of evidence would we need to suggest that this might have some validity? One historical event and the network of Bombay-based individuals associated with it may help advance the argument. The event is the Maharaj libel case in 1862 in Bombay. The libel was purportedly committed by Kursundas Jumalji, a Gujarati journalist, editor of Satya Prakash, which had published an expose of the carnal practices of the Bombay-based Vallabhacharyas, uh, Vaishnava followers of Krishna as Srinathji. Mulji saw himself, as the title of his journal suggested, as engaged in a process of illumination. The light of truth was to be cast upon a corrupt version of Hinduism. A description in a 1935 volume marking the centenary of his birth allows us some insight into the way different image regimes were invoked in mid-19th century Bombay. His words were photographic, the eulogy announced, quote, picturing the character, the temper, the disposition, and the intellectual resources behind him. His words were photographic. What could this mean? One aspect of this seems to involve a competition between different modes of indexicality, that of the photograph versus what the 19th century anthropologist James Fraser would theorize as contagious magic. Photography, as Roland Barthes argued, is a magic, not an art. Its magical indexicality found itself in competition with Vallabhacharya magical indexicality, in which the causal contiguity of bodies and objects facilitated a contagion of authority. The Mulji centenary account, which had praised his photographic words, noted also that he detested, quote, quote false shows of religion and the worship of stocks and stones. This sense of a choice between two modes of indexicality, between the causal contiguity of light and image in photography and power and effect in contagious magic, was further underlined by the preoccupation of one of his supporting witnesses in the 1862 trial, Dr. Baldaji, with a particular instance of false religion. Quote, um, this is part of his testimony in the trial. I have seen the Maharaja's bath and hundreds rushing to drink the water dripping from his langoti. The women apply their hands to the soles of his feet and eat the dust. If the Vallabhacharya's contagious magic was about the corruption of collectivities, Mulji's photographic words presaged individuation. The economy of the ideal citizen's social conduct as a member of the family, neighbor, citizen, patriot, human being, uh, this is a quote, was praised by Mulji. Quote, he must think out and use for himself and must not permit the gusty violence of some mob passion in whatever respectable garb that passion clothed itself to usurp the authority of private judgment, end quote. 
And Baudardji introduced himself to the court on February 14, 1862, with a lengthy inventory of his claims to authority. A graduate of Grant Medical College, private practitioner, prizeman of Elphinstone College, winner of the prize on the best essay on female infanticide in Katiwa, etc., uh, etc. Et he was the photographer brother of the commercial photographer Narayan Darji, um, whose photograph of a group of Vallabhacharyas formed the basis of the engraved frontispiece in the main account of the Mulji trial. It is striking how this group forms a line, almost as though they would be waiting, waiting to be split one from the other in a process of redemptive individuation. One week earlier, another of Mulji's supporting witnesses, a Dr. Sorry, Dr. John Wilson had introduced himself to the court with an equally impressive set of meritocratic credentials. Minister of the Free Church Scotland, graduate of the University of Edinburgh, member of the Royal Society of Great Britain and Ireland, a member of the Bombay branch of the Royal Asiatic Society, and so on. These two witnesses present a small glimpse of an emergent, imported civil society in Bombay. Civil society here denoting what um, Charles Taylor describes as, quote, those autonomous associations independent of the state which bind citizens together in matters of common concern. And what Partha Chatterjee terms those, quote, institutions of modern associational life originating in Western societies which are based on equality, autonomy, freedom of entry and exit, contract, deliberative procedures of decision making, recognized rights and duties of members and other such principles. We can also see a desire to invoke, uh, to invoke Habermas for a, um, a world in which citizens, I quote, confer in an unrestricted fashion with the freedom to express and publish their opinions about matters of general interest. In this case, this group of putative citizens were all friends of Mulji and staunch supporters of his attacks on corrupt collectivities in the name of a photographically enunciated authority of private judgment. And they were all very intimately enmeshed in photographic practice. Wilson had hovered in the background of an image first published in Johnson and Henderson's The Indian Amateur's Photographic Album in 1856. And I quote from the uh, letterpress um, pasted on the back of that image, which starts by invoking precisely that photographic community that I'm attempting to delineate here. Quote, we have great pleasure in submitting to our friends a photograph of two very interesting female representatives of the Brahmin tribe. They are at present in Bombay under the care of their venerable grandmother, enjoying instruction principally through the medium of our noble English tongue, under the direct guidance of Dr. Wilson's family. The attention shown by their father, who is much distinguished in the judicial service of the government to their training and culture, is highly exemplary and much to be commended. In Mulji's notion of the authority of private judgment and the public display of Arulabai and Lakshmibai in Johnson and Henderson's image, we can see what Partha Chatterjee terms, quote, that new conception of personhood where the private and intimate are always oriented towards a public. In the case of Arula and Lakshmi, the care of their venerable grandmother and the attention shown by their father cease to be purely private domestic matters and are redirected to a new public, which is constituted through the complex semaphore of the text, signaling them as representative, invoking a unitary moral world in which they are exemplary and mirroring back the commendations of this imaginary public. Speaking words of photographic truth was a possibility that greatly interested 
the Honourable Mr Justice John Budd Fear. Fear is probably now best known for the use Karl Marx made of his book The Aryan Village in India and Ceylon, but he was also a senior judge, president of the Bengal Photographic Society, the Bengal Social Science Association and the Asiatic Society in the late 1860s. In March 1866, Fear delivered a lecture on the rules of evidence in Indian courts of law to the Bethune Society, a key institution in the emergent Bengali civil society. Um, Fear explored how photographs, unimpeachable truths, might form the, a model for rules of evidence in the Indian judicial system. Fear's initial assumption was that there were principles of English justice justice which needed to be introduced into Indian courts, which as yet were not able to gather evidence properly. Recall that Norman Cheevers in 1856 in the Manual of Medical Jurisprudence had noted uh, that the untrustworthiness of native evidence is taken as received fact. And it was specific, specifically autoptic indexicality, i.e. eyewitnessing indexicality, that is the physical causal contiguity between a representation and the object it represents that fear invokes. Fear mobilizes precisely this reasoning in his argument about hearsay. Quote, a witness will not be allowed to testify to a matter of fact, not within his direct knowledge or perception. Hearsay produces a filtered account. The eyewitness embodies a surplus, an excess that may be of use in the court. Quote, it is he alone who can furnish additional facts, facts incidental to, connected with, following upon the main fact, but as yet untold by him, end quote. In a similar vein, the eyewitness's evidence might, like the non-discriminating data ratio of the photograph, have, an, have unexpected exorbitant effects. Quote, it is essential that he should speak only that which he knows of his own knowledge, that he should say all of that which he so knows which may be beneficial to either side. Um, either is in either side in italics in the um, text. Fear concluded his talk by noting that experience in the Calcutta judiciary over the last 18 months demonstrates that, quote, the courts here unconsciously perhaps ignore nearly every one of the rule of procedure and of investigation to which he had alluded. The impact of Fear's lecture on James Fitzjames Stevens' drafting of the 1872 Indian Evidence Act is a matter for further research. It is, however, worth noting that section 63 of the Act, dealing with secondary evidence, records that, quote, a photograph of an original is secondary evidence of its contents, but that, quote, an oral account of a photograph is not secondary evidence of those contents, i.e. it's given a much lower legal status. Photography in Fear's account served as the perfect model of judicial evidence in which indexicality would win out against hearsay. In other forms of evidence production, however, photography's task was much more complex. Here, photography's inability to compete with the imaginative ability of non-photographic representation made commercial photographers confront difficult decisions. Next section is a photographic mutiny. In Tresida's uh, 1857-63 album of Agra and Cornpore, an image captioned Christ Church Cornpore taken on 3rd March 57, then in brackets, before the mutiny, copied from a paper negative found in the Cornpore Bazaar after the mutiny. Unfortunately, you can only see the first half of his inscription. Signals Tresida's deep exploration of photography as a history machine. 
a technology for the deposition of traces and memories of what has been lost, but also prefigures Kittler's discussion of how film, with its separation of consciousness and memory, laid the foundations for psychoanalysis. But this history machine, in its early form, brought with it disappointment. The American physician and poet Oliver Wendell Holmes had forecast in 1864 that, quote, the time is perhaps at hand when a flash of light as sudden and brief as that of lightning should preserve the very instant of the shock of contact of the mighty armies that are even now gathering. The lightning of clashing sabers and bayonets may be forced to stereotype itself in a stillness as complete as that of the tumbling tide of the Niagara. The protean nature of photographic technology would eventually make the production of such battlefield documents possible um, and would make indexical evidence available to different audiences. In the longer version of this, I talk about um, the photography and cinematography that attends the Guru Kabag riot incident in Amritsar in 1922. It's extensively photographed and filmed, filmed by an American cinematographer called A.L. Vargas. And this causes um, a profound anxiety in the colonial state, which then go to exceptional and inordinate lengths to try and recuperate these images, to control them, prevent them being shown, etc., etc. Um, so the later part of the story then deals with how um, a mobile indexical photography is able to produce, um, record the clash of sabers and bayonets. Um, but during the insurrection, it's not. And um, I'm focusing briefly on the problems that um, uh, um, result from that and what it tells us about um, uh, the infrastructure of um, uh, photography's prophetic capability. The 1857 insurrection was the subject of extensive photography, uh, but rather than capturing the clash of sabers and bayonets, the camera would struggle to document the scene of a crime. The central techno-material fact of all photography relating to the 1857 uprising is that it happened after the events it wished to document. The photographer only had the scene of an event which had long gone, and we can frequently see the camera poised, uncertain as to where to fix its evidence. The stage, long empty and in many cases metaphorically darkened, refuses to release its evidence of the event. In the Harriet and Robert Teitler collection in the British Library, one can see the limitations of the camera as a producer of historical effect. Humayun's tomb, where the king was captured by Hodson, is their caption, is simply a photograph of that magnificent tomb with some cultivated land in the foreground. The caption encourages us to search for the precise location of the capture of the king, but our inability to do this further inscribes the absence, the prior event, that photography fails to capture. Popular engravings of the incident had no such problems. Charles Ball's History of the Indian Mutiny shows us the action as it unfolds. The camera is always constrained by what the lens can record. Other media were freed from this constraint, and we'll see shortly how this provides the infrastructure for its prophetic potentiality. In a similar vein, Slaughter Gart Kornpour presents us with a vacant space waiting for its historical inscription. This is the space of an event, but because that event has gone, it remains simply a space. Without the caption, there is only a topographic scene, a riverbank where various small shrines abut a lower mud shelf above the river, on the banks of which are tethered two country boats. The Titlers and Murray participants, and in Murray's case, a near participant in the events of 1857 to 8, 
were content with this emptiness, for those were, these were places they already knew where friends and acquaintances had died. For them, the emptiness was sufficiently resonant with loss not to require further elaboration. For commercial photographers such as Felis Beato, however, the scene of the crime, which could no longer be seen, was insufficient. His solution was to create a complex photographic diegesis, a complex reanimation of the insurrection as a theatrical spectacle for which the spectator was granted front row seats. Magnificent views and panoramas, declared Herring, his London publisher. This theatrical aspect was created through various forms of reenactment and misdescription. In an image often captioned news from dispatches, Colin Campbell and William Mansfield participate in Beato's recreation of the war that he had missed. And the hanging of two rebels positions us in the photographic edos of death, always a good surrogate for historicity. The most striking example of Beato's attempts to make the crime re-inhabit those scenes from which it had long departed was the interior of the Sikundabag at Lucknow. As John Fraser has documented, Beato did not arrive in Lucknow until probably March 1858, four or perhaps five months after its capture. So how was it that so long after the event, the skeleton of skeletons of rebels were so evident, so conveniently acting out the ghostly tragedy of the Sikundabag? Writing in 1893, Sir George Campbell would recall that, quote, there was a first-rate photographer in attendance taking all the scenes, and many of the scenes were really very striking. The great pile of bodies had been decently covered over before the photographer could take them, but he insisted on having them uncovered to be photographed before they were finally disposed of. For a public desiring images of the events, of the events themselves, this was of little consequence. Photography was, after all, supposed to preserve the very instant of the shock of contact. How far photographers and their entrepreneurial collaborators were prepared to go is apparent from an intriguing commentary relating to a volume in the British Library known as the Dannenberg Album. In May 1892, a writer to the Pioneer, uh, Allahabad newspaper, recorded how he had just seen an album, quote, a rare curiosity with 68 rare photographs of buildings in Lucknow and Cawnpore, all of which, quote, are more or less memorials of 1857-8. The argument then becomes more surprising, becomes indeed startling. Quote, though laid by for, for so many years, the pictures are as fresh and sharp as if they'd been printed from recent negatives, the writer claims. What makes these photographs interesting is that we have in them the correct picture of the various buildings, just as they appeared, this is in italics, immediately after the battering to which they were subjected in the struggle of the memorable mutiny of 1857. And I doubt if there is another such series of photos taken at that time in the whole of India. The pioneer correspondent then comments on three photographic copies of lithographs from drawings by Charles Wade Crump, as though they were photographs like Beato's images of Lucknow. We have, and he's referring to the image here, a graphic picture of General Sir H. Wheeler's entrenchment as it appeared just after the terrible struggle with skeletons and vultures on the ground. We have also a most vivid scene of the Cawnpore Chamber of Blood, with marks on the walls and broken pots and pans, shoes and slippers, etc., on the floor, photographed evidently before the place had lost the sad signs of the terrible sufferings endured there. We have also the original of the well, which had become so famous as the pit into which the dead and the dying were cast before Havelock and his brave troops entered the city, etc., um, etc. Et a parallel commentary by one Thomas Evans quotes the French Orientalist writer Pierre Loti 
to the remarkable effect. Quote, if places have the adumbrations of human souls still inhabiting their precincts as a sort of delicious spiritual aroma of self-sacrifice pervading the localities where noble life and beautiful human love were shed in profusion for a nation's cause, then this album of mutiny memorials will remain a sort of incense to the heroic deed in pictorial form. This willingness to read photographs of lithographs as indexical traces reveals the necessity that viewers of photographs should find in them a living historicity. An increasingly mobile technology would eventually permit this indexically. In the meantime, the non-indexical seeped into the domain of the indexical, driven by that yearning for the delicious aroma. A curious example of this is a painting by uh, the Russian painter Vasily Vereshchagin, which um, V.D. Um, Savarka reproduced, correctly attributed to Vereshchagin as an image showing Indian revolutionaries being blown from the mouth of guns in his account of the insurrection of the First Indian War of Independence. Um, many rebels were executed in this fashion. The Illustrated London News pictured this in 1857, and Ball's History of the Indian Mutiny has a striking steel engraving. But if Sarakar was right to identify this as a painting, he was wrong to attach it to 1857. In fact, Veris Chagan, who was in India uh, between 1876 and 77, painted 49 Namdhari Sikhs being executed in Ludhiana following anti-cow slaughter disturbances. Eventually, the image would attain a quasi-photographic status, and the source of this transformation is most probably uh, 1941 Nazi propaganda leaflet, oh, which I don't have here, uh, Robstadt England, Robber State England, which reproduced the image as part of its anti-British -colonial, anti colonial litany with the caption, this 1857 photograph was published in 1939 by the English newspaper Picture Post. It shows the methods used to suppress the Sepoy Rebellion. This painting of events in 1872 now circulates widely as a photograph of events in 1857. Here we encounter photography incarnated in ways that resonate with those who argue against the strong versions of the print culture revolution. All those questions of authorship, copyright, the variability of the text, the apparent tenacity of older scribal forms which are adduced in critiques of the print revolution thesis in texts by Adrian Johns and David McKitterick in a European context and Stuart Blackburn in relation to South India are thrown up in photographic processes also. However, much though I admire and concede the validity of many of those counterpositions, I still want to insist on the significance of the changes, the disturbance that photography precipitated in India. So if my attention is drawn to instances where photography is incorporated into pre-existing Islamic schemata, such as in Ahmed Ali Khan's image of Wajid Ali Shah's household, which we'll see in due course, and parallels drawn with the marginalia to be found in incunabuli in early um, European printing, which is invoked as evidence of the blurred space between manuscript and printed cultures, well then, yes, I would readily agree that the photographic revolution I'm trying to describe does not entail the abolition of everything that goes before. There are complex entanglements with and echoes of what precedes photography within photography. As Tom Mitchell observes, all media is mixed media. But this does not negate the possibility that photography was an agent of radical social transformation, not as a technology overpowering man, but as a technical practice in the Latourian sense, which fused human actors with the apparatus of photography. 
So, for instance, many photographic portraits, Indian photographic portraits, invoke conventions established in earlier painterly practice. Conventions apparent in Winterhalter's Princess Victoria Guramo of Kurg from about 1835. You can see on the left a full-length figure facing the viewer with one hand placed on top of a column in which there are various decorative items, the whole ensemble being positioned by a hazy backdrop connoting nature, is endlessly repeated in the portrait practices of both professional and amateur photographers within India. There's nothing surprising about this. Indeed, one might go further and argue that in India, a very powerful attachment to a hieratic and coherently pictured body has tenaciously lain at the center of popular photographic and filmic practice. Photography's arbitrary truncation of space, its screen rather than frame in Bazin's terms, which seemed so revolutionary for many 19th century European artists. European artists pose what Ashish Raja Juksha perceptively terms an ethical problem for many Indian practitioners. What photography makes possible is not the creation of a dramatically new aesthetic mise-en-scene, but the mass production and democratization of such an aesthetic. A focus on aesthetic continuities risks, runs the risk of blinding us to the consequences of the fact that, as Adorno says, photographs embody a two-dimensional dimensional model of reality that can be multiplied without limit and displaced both spatially and temporally. The Bengali writer um, Ardish Shargata, cited by Rochana Majumdar, observed in 1904 that, quote, a good oil painting cannot be had for less than a thousand or even two thousand rupees. Photography gives us a far more accurate likeness for a hundred. Here we might think about Peter Stalybras's wholly compelling argument, in my view, developing Elizabeth Eisenstein's original claim that the increased numbers of printed indulgences triggered the Reformation. An earlier corporeally constrained scribal system of indulgence production was exploded by an exponential inflation of printed pardons. Gutenberg was printing indulgences as early as 1452. One indulgence is thought to have been printed more than 140,000 times by the end of the 15th century. Here we see, as with photography's reproduction of the painterly idioms, the point at which the quantitative becomes qualitative. More of the old is not necessarily only more of the old. If there is enough of it and it moves at a fast enough speed, a new system and new structures emerge. One aspect of photography's new order is apparent in a collection in the British Library of 62 Oldman prints from the early 1860s. These reveal the way in which photography made existing modes of portraiture available to new subjects. The heightened aesthetic techniques of portrait painters are drawn upon to position these Bengali subjects in what Bliss refers to as Rembrandt photos. The figures are posed with exquisite precision, producing images of astonishing stillness and beauty. A dirty-clad man gives spatial depth to the image through his extended arm, clutching a walking stick, and psychological depth with his offstage vision. Photography extends an aesthetic previously available only to those who could commission painted portraits. Perhaps the most significant example of the blurred space where the quantitative turns into the qualitative, where the sheer velocity and intensification of representation produces new social forms, can be seen in the connection between frontality and individuation. Mass portraiture prior to photography took the form of a silhouette and profile in both Europe and in Indian traditions. 
The British Library collection includes an 1880s photographic copy of a silhouette of a major George Broadfoot of the Bengal engineers. This photographic copy of an earlier technology of portraiture underlines through its curious anachronism the transformation that photography facilitated. Photography's industrialization of portraiture made frontality available to everyone who could afford to enter the studio. Photography invented the face rather than the profile as everyone's right. And since this technical practice developed alongside the emergence of the modern Indian state, it is tempting to say as the right of every citizen. With the face came new forms of recognition, memory, and mass perpetuity. In India, prior to photography, only the gods and kings had faces. Photography reconfigured this ratio. These faces and the subjects that began to adhere to them could be of different kinds, the already achieved and the aspirant. The photographer's index or chemical trace and non-discriminating data ratio was unable to differentiate between existing and subjunctive identities. It merely recorded whatever was placed in front of the camera. An image of the merchant L. E. Roots Rees, subsequently celebrated for his personal narrative of the siege of Lucknow, 1858, in Ahmed Ali Khan's Lucknow album, is captioned Mr. Rees in native costume. But what the photograph actually does, non-judgmentally, is record a body in Indian clothes. It has nothing to say about the normativity or identity of that body or its adornment. The French cultural theorist and sometime politician Jacques Attali has argued that music in certain circumstances acts in advance of social reality. Its code is quicker than that of society as a whole. Its prophecy operating on a semiological frontier. Photographic self-representation, sorry, self-presentation, also seems to often act as prophecy, as a tactic of inquiry and imagination. This was a quality perceptively engaged by Roland Barthes. Quote, once I feel myself observed by the lens, everything changes. I constitute myself in the process of posing. I instantaneously make another body for myself. I transform myself in advance into an image. Consider, for instance, two striking images photographed by Ahmed Ali Khan of Begums in the Awad court, circa 1855. The physician Joseph Thera recorded a visit which may have left its literary deposition in Salman Rushdie's description of Dr. Adam Aziz's examination of Nassim Ghani in Midnight's Children at around the same time to treat one of the Begums who was, quote, dangerously ill. Arriving at the Chattamanzil, he was taken to the sick room where the chief eunuch and various female attendants were present. Quote, a Kashmir shawl was stretched across the room, behind which the Begum was seated. Farah immediately requested that the Pada be removed. The screen was removed to reveal the Begum seated upon a silver charpoy enveloped in shawls. Farah repeated that, quote, without seeing her, nothing could be done, she giving faint and muffled replies from the depths of the shawls. Farah is eventually able to hold her wrist and by the third visit was allowed to see her face and her tongue and to ascertain something of the nature of her case. Amid Ali Khan's photographs record a much greater readiness to unveil and suggest that the space in front of the camera became for many a zone for the presentation of cells that could not be so easily presented elsewhere. 
The presence of several of these images in an album in the uh, Al-Khazi photographic collection, seemingly compiled by a European. So what I'm saying is that these, the photographic images which you see here embedded in these very ornate um, um, structures were also circulating as single photographic images elsewhere. So they, for instance, appear in this particular album, the Al-Khazi photographic collection, seemingly compiled by a European. One of them is captioned, uh, one of the King of Oud's uh, ladies indicates that they were not circulating only with the seclusion of Wajid Ali Shah's court. If Farah's account can be said to record the everyday practices of visibility and seclusion in the court, Amid Ali Khan's photographs seem to record that peculiar space of prophetic experimentation that the camera engenders. As Benjamin wrote, quote, it is a different nature which speaks to the camera than the eye so different that in place of a space consciously woven together, there enters a space held together unconsciously. This seems to have been the case with the Secunda Begum of Bhopal, photographed by James Waterhouse in 1862. In each of the eight photographs in which um, Secunda Begum appears, she's dressed differently. Quote, I was constantly employed in taking pictures of the Begum in various dr dresses of native ladies. I had no time to take the same picture twice as the Begum changed her dress immediately, Waterhouse reported. In one image, the Begum appears in satin pajamas, a gold embroidered black jacket, and a cat with a bird of paradise plume, which all offset her recently awarded Star of India. In another image, she's flanked by three Churi Burdars wielding the bushy tails of Tibetan yaks. The Begum wears a king cub jacket embroidered with blue and gold, with feathers or fur around the collar, and very loose Turkish trousers. Together with her daughter, the Shah Jahan and Bibi Dulan, she then appears in red and white saris of the kind worn for marriage in Malwa and northwestern provinces. The Begum's striking behavior would seem to lend support to the idea that photography precipitates behavior which otherwise remains latent. As with Atali's music, quote, which makes audible what will gradually become visible, there is a faster exploration of possibilities when the camera is present and when the sitter controls the process. Both Sujit Kumar Pahil and uh, Malvika Karlikar in different ways have made important claims about the way in which photography transformed women's relationship to public space and helped create new modes of domesticity. Here, the space of the photographic studio enforced a new focus on marriage as conjugality, a relationship between husband and wife rather than the alliance between lineages. The standard unit of photographic record becomes a man and a woman together, not two large gotra or subcast collectivities. This new technology um, brought to bear on what might reasonably see be seen as the fundamental mechanism of Indian society restructured it as a conjugal relationship. Rochana Majumdar asks, quote, how are we to understand Bengali wedding portraits, most of which show the bride and bridegroom, often with their limbs touching? their images frozen, frozen in a gesture of togetherness, when other histories seem to suggest that these sentiments were far more contested in everyday life. Conjugality, especially in various Indian reformist movements, was defined and enacted in front of the camera, prophesized, Atali would say, before being exported to more everyday spaces. And as Sujit Pariyal has convincingly argued, photography, not as representation, but as event, also articulated new modes of the public, 
and the physical act of photographing women outside their homes, precipitated by the need for light and new mise-en-scene, was not simply a representation of new modes of spatiality, but the simultaneous physical enactment of that new world. Photographs became image acts, which, like J.L. Austin's speech acts, are performatives. In the act of enunciation, they do not simply describe the world, they change it. These contrasts between photography as the documenter of what has already been achieved socially and as a space of experimentation where new identities can be conjured are made possible by photography's indiscriminating data ratio. It records both equally well. And this is why such powerfully different expectations can be brought to bear on the same technical process. Photography's indexicality, its chemical trace, its data, data ratio, has underpinned the dualities that I've elaborated here and also in the larger project of which it's um, a fragment. Cure and poison, network and individuation, the already existent and the future possibility. All these evolve from and return to photography's inability to discriminate, its exorbitance. This inability to discriminate, an inability reflecting photography's data ratio and the openness of its filter, underwrites its diverse outcomes. I've tried here to attend to the specificity of India and to convey a feel of the sensuous particularity of the archive through which we can recover this specificity. Yet beyond this necessary localism, I've advanced an argument about the underlying exorbitance of photography, which explains, I believe, perhaps deludedly precisely, the reticulated terrain whose complexity has often been taken as evidence of the impossibility of any general account of photography. Throughout this complex history, however, a continuous thread has stood out. Indians' enthusiasm for the sentimental realism of portraiture. In embracing this technology with its individuating dynamic and the photographic studio as a prophetic space for making things come out better, Indians have also engaged in a profound everyday sense, the experiential epistemology of what, for want of a better word, we might call democracy, representing themselves to themselves. It is certain that most Indians have never been able to believe in the bourgeois modular subject that seems to have inspired Bharadji in the 1850s and 60s. The civil institutions which suckered such forms of identity never made it far outside of small metropolitan elites. However, standing in front of the camera or the polling booth and voting machine, India's citizens are able to ask the same fundamental question, who do I want to be? And this, I would suggest, may well be the major legacy of the coming of photography in India. Thank you.